Uh, Hebrews 8 will help us get going this morning. We're not, we won't be there for just a second. Um, and then we'll have we'll have a little bit of. Let me just let you know what we're doing. Uh, we started our new members class this morning, and looks like it'll be going on for about four weeks. And in our new members class, we look at the church covenant, which the original members of this body adopted together, covenanted together under this um, this document, this church covenant. I've been here two years going on this month, and we've not talked a lot about it. Now, I've mentioned it, but we haven't, um, we haven't gone to it and, and understood its purpose, uh, what it is to do for us, what it is, how it is to help us. And so for the next four weeks, which we've got four weeks left in January, we're going to spend our time um, thinking about, looking at uh, the idea and the practices, not just of a church covenant, but in a sense, how we practice membership, and that's um, uh, covenant membership, because we we come together in membership under this covenant. Uh, so here's here's the three things that we're really going to do this morning. We're going to think about covenant in itself, like the the, the term. Uh, then we're going to have a few thoughts on church covenant. And then we're going to look at Ephesians 4 to really give us a basis on all of it, okay? And you'll see how it all comes together as we work through it. So, And we're going to be in Hebrews 8 to help us think about just the word covenant in general. So, before I begin, our text is Hebrews or Ephesians 4, but let's read Hebrews 8 uh, verses... Six through thirteen, Hebrews eight verses six through thirteen, and then we'll follow that with a prayer. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and now from from here on to 12 is uh, the author of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 31. For he finds fault with them when he says, now the quote of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, here is the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now let's turn to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, uh, we, we seek the guidance of your Spirit. We need him to lead my words and to open the ears of those who hear Help us to see and know more of your glorious goodness, wisdom, and truth in your covenant-keeping love towards those whom you have covered with the blood of Christ. All for his glory and his sake we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so what, what's, what's a covenant? We don't, we, don't use those word, we don't use that word very much anymore. Let me give you... Uh, a dictionary definition, okay? And I have three because there, no one can agree completely. Uh, but you'll get the overall picture. What's a covenant? A formal agreement or promise between two or more people. It's pretty simple. Another uh, dictionary definition. A usually formal and solemn, meaning serious, and binding agreement. So a formal, solemn, and binding agreement. The third one I've got is an agreement or mutual obligation contracted deliberately and with solemnity, seriousness. So you get the picture on what a covenant is. There are two parties. There's an, a, there's a promise, an agreement. It's binding. Uh, it's mutual. And it's serious. It's got weight. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, you realize that this idea, covenant, is how God interacts with his creatures from beginning to end. You find covenant in Genesis 1, and you see when you get to uh, Revelation 22, the fulfillment of the new covenant. God is always interacting with people by covenants, mutual agreements between him and them. And we're not going to spend a lot of time, hardly, we're not going to spend much time in Hebrews 8 at all because we actually had just gone through Hebrews 8 a couple months ago. Um, and so there's just a couple things I want us to point out in Hebrews 8 before we really get to start talking about church covenant. So, first off, church covenant means nothing apart from the covenant God has made with us. The new covenant. So you've got to have some sort of entry point into our covenant together with God's covenant with each one of us. So look at Hebrews 8 and see, starting in verse 10, God's in his defining his relationship with people, specifically those who are the church, who are in Christ as it's then revealed. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days declares the Lord. So you're also going to see that that includes us Gentiles as we get to Ephesians. But we'll come to that later. He says he'll do this. I will. God will. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their hearts. 
and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is God's part of the new covenant. And he says then in verse 11, well, no, let's start at the end of verse 10. Notice what is created out of God's new covenant. It is a people. It is a group. It's not an individual. It's a collection of individuals. God's covenant is creating a covenant community. All right? A covenant community. Now, he says about these people that the law of his law will be put into their minds and their hearts. Uh, in the first covenant, where was the law? It was on stone. In the new covenant, God is going beyond stone and writing it within us. In verse 11, he says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What do you, so then you'd be like, well, why are you telling me I should learn this about God? Because it says I should know him. The point is, is that he comes to us and dwells in us and makes himself known to us. Because the Spirit of God comes within us. That's why John says in, uh, Jesus says in John 17 that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. God is making himself known by indwelling in us. And they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And in verse 12, he says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's part of the new covenant God has made with us, which will come in that'll come real in real in hand really come in handy later when we look at the covenant and see how we're to deal with one another's sins. We must remember that God has looked upon our iniquities, shown mercy to us, and he remembers them no more. So that's God's covenant with the church through Jesus Christ. And how does Jesus uh, talk about it at the Lord's Supper? How does this new covenant come to us? By his blood. The new covenant. God's oath with you, and he is an oath-keeping God, comes to us through the blood of his Son and is applied to us by his Spirit. So that, that's the beautiful thing about knowing the Trinity is that our salvation, our eternal life, our redemption is wrapped up in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And of course, we've talked about that in Hebrews 10, right? The will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. All of the Godhead is in and a part of our salvation, is connected to us in the new covenant. So that's a poor uh, introduction into covenant. But we got, we've got to move on, and let's talk about church covenant for a minute, for a while, for four weeks, actually. Um, so what is church covenant? Here's a, a sort of an academic definition that I found, and it's, it's good. And then I want to give you a more of a practical, down-to-home, down-to-earth definition, and then a summary of our, our church covenant which, by the way, is on the back of our bulletins this morning. Uh, and I'll probably keep it on there throughout this month. But 
I would highly recommend taking it, putting it in your Bible, going home, reading it, praying through it, uh, praying about it as we do this for the next four weeks. So what's a church covenant? Here's a pretty good just academic definition. A church covenant is a a series of written pledges based on the Bible which church members voluntarily make to God and to one another regarding their basic moral and spiritual commitments and the practice of their faith. Now that's a lot. Here's practically what this looks like. Church covenant is a commitment we make to one another here that sort of defines Ozark's Bible church. So we have to keep in mind as we think about church covenant or church or membership is that this building is not Ozark's Bible church. You are Ozark's Bible church. You understand that? But who? What is those who have covenanted with one another? That is what makes this Ozark's Bible church as opposed to the church down the street. You have covenanted, committed, vowed yourself to one another in the sight of God. That is sort of what sets us as Ozark's Bible church. It's not the building, but it's those who come to the building. Ozark's Bible church is the people who have come together and vowed not just your commitment to one another, but most, first and foremost, your commitment to Christ, his kingdom, the local body, and to one another's souls. That's, in nutshell, the covenant. Christ, his kingdom, the local assembly, and one another's souls. So, here a short summary using the words from our covenant, just a, a few sentences. Our church covenant is summarized in this way. As professing believers as Jesus Christ, we solemnly and joyfully commit to one another as the body of Christ. That's paragraph one in in a summary form. We commit to one another as the body of Christ to strive, paragraph two, to walk together in the unity of love for the advancement of this church. Paragraph three, For the advancement of the kingdom of our Savior, paragraph 4, and to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's it. That's the covenant in a nutshell. And this morning, we're not going to look at the whole thing. We're going to talk about basically the first paragraph. And so let's read. I'll read you the first paragraph before we move on. Let me find my bulletin here. So look at the back of your bulletin. I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. So that's going to be the focus of what we're going to be discussing 
this morning. Um, but still, there's a little bit, a little bit more about church covenant broadly, historically, uh, biblically, before we look at Ephesians four. Now, I'm, 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 I'm aware that here and in all churches and all places that people are hesitant with things like this, with church covenant or even membership, because. And, and I'm so thankful because they're, they want to go and they want to look at the scriptures and say, I, I don't seeing, I'm not seeing these things that you're talking about, a, a church covenant, a document that binds us all together. I thought Christ binds us all together, the Spirit of God. And I'm so thankful that their concern is drawing a line back to the scriptures, back to the time of the apostles. And so church covenant is a problem. For some, and it seems to some that church covenant or even formal membership is a newer sort of thing. Maybe a hundred years old, maybe fifty. I don't know. I don't know exactly how some people view it. So historically, where's church covenant um, come from? How far back is this idea? How old are these practices? Well, churches. Uh, adopting covenants is as old as Protestantism. Okay, so if you're not familiar with church history, let's just let's just basically say for the first 1500 years of the church, it was all one under what eventually would be known as Roman Catholicism. Um, I'm not going to get the weeds of Eastern Orthodoxy, but we understand that there was one major church that claimed authority, and that was the Roman church. Well, in the 1500s, we talked about Luther in October. Remember in the evenings, the Protestant Reformation took place because they saw how the church had swerved from the scriptures in uh, doctrines of justification, which we've learned in this month, in doctrines of the church and how they're governed and ran, and in the doctrines of scripture. And so what happened about 1500 is these churches were starting to be created outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's like it's like the moving into the Wild West, right? You're established on the East Coast and you know everything and there's there's roads and there's places to go and then you get out to the Wild West and you're like, what do we do? And that's kind of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. These people realized the error of the the Roman Church and so uh, they started forming these churches like ours, and they say, what do we do? How do we act? Who's in charge? Who governs us? How are we to behave? What makes us us? And so church covenants started to take form at that same time. Now, as far as membership goes, I, I, would, I would like to suggest to you that you could trace that back to Jesus pretty easy. When you think about uh, Jesus discussing church discipline, it's almost impossible to think of Matthew 18 without considering that you are a member of a local assembly. Because he says if you're in sin and you're not going to repent, then the word excommunication isn't used, but that's the point. Treat them as tax collectors. And Paul would then later make the point, to the Corinthians, um, I think I have this written down. Paul instructed the Corinthians to remove to remove 
from among them an unrepentant sinner. And he says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, they did this. And if you further uh, look at 2 Corinthians, you see that it appears that they removed this person from among them by what is potentially a majority vote. Who voted? Well, I would I would say the members. Second Corinthians, Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by, by the majority is enough. But here's the beauty of all this. In Corinth, the church at Corinth's commitment to one another, their covenant with one another, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his church, and for the sake of the soul of the sinner... They removed him from among them in hopes that he would repent and return to them. Which is, it appears, what happened because Paul then says, So you would rather, talking to the church, turn to forgive and comfort him, the sinner, the, re- the repentant sinner, or he, may, or he may be overwhelmed by the excess sorrow. He says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So in First and Second Corinthians, in this episode, in their commitment to uh, do as Paul insisted, Christ was glorified, the church was purified, and the soul was sanctified. Now I'm I want to say here, and you're going to hear me say this for the next four weeks. Those three things are the purpose behind our church covenant. That Christ is glorified, the church is purified, and the saints are sanctified. That's all the words on our church covenant mean to do. And not that the power or the authority is in the covenant. All the covenant does is say, that's what the Bible says. Go look at what the Bible says. Um, so, you know, to finish sort of this thought on church covenant, um, you people are still like, but man, it just it's not in the Bible. And I hope I hope over the next four weeks that I you're going to see it. Um. But I want to compare it to something that all of us understand, even if we've not experienced this one thing, we all sort of have an understanding with it. And that's a covenant of marriage. Did you know when you got married or when you plan to get married that you are making a covenant with one another? Do you know that when you get married and you make that covenant that you speak vows and those vows commit yourself to that other person now now let me just say this this doesn't mean that if you covenant with Ozarks Bible Church that it's debt till death do you part okay <laughs> that's not the point um, because you're your covenant commitment to Ozarks Bible Church is an expression of your true commitment to the body of Christ, the local church. And so there are times 
and good reasons for people to attend and covenant at a different church. And there are times and good reasons for people to remove themselves from a church. And so that it's not to say that it's always and forever. Um, but in, in the theme of in the theme of marriage and vows, I may ask you this. Can you point to me in Scripture where God says you need to speak vows at your wedding? Can't. Nowhere God said that you need to verbally commit yourself before people to your spouse. But listen to this. This is what the majority of us has said at our wedding. And if you hear any old English, it's because I found that it was in the 1500s that the first English version of vows took place, which kind of happens to go around the same time of church covenants. But wedding vows have actually been around longer. Here's one. Wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou love her, comfort her, Honor and keep her in sickness and health and forsaking all others. Keep thee only unto her so as long as you both shall live. And then to the, to the, the woman. Wilt thou have this man to, uh, to be thy wedded husband to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou obey him and serve him, love him? Honor and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others. Keep thee only unto him so long as you both shall live. Now imagine you're six weeks out from your wedding. And the husband, or the, excuse me, the, the fiance tells his bride-to-be, You know, darling, I don't think committing to you through these vows that aren't written in scripture is not a good idea. Because, darling, it's not scripture. I don't see these vows in scripture. I'm going to pass. Everything about those wedding vows are scripture. Everything. Basically, read the last half of Ephesians 5. That's the vows that you take at your wedding. The vows represent the biblical covenant commitment. That's what church covenant is. That's all it is. It's a vow to commit yourself to the local body of Christ for the sake, again, of the glory of Christ, the purity of the church, and the sanctification of the saints. That's what our covenant represents. Of course, one more objection. Well, if it's that big a deal, I've been to five churches in the last 20, 10, 5 years, and no one's ever talked about this. Well, if you have any idea of what the state of the church is in America, then that pretty much makes my point. Churches, most churches are indifferent, ignorant, or both about this local church about the local church, about the body of Christ in its localness. Now, 
couple reasons, and they're the same reason, but they come out in different ways. And it's one, it could be their low view of Scripture, because as I said, our covenant and what we're supposed to be in, as, as covenant members is very clear in Scripture. But it also could be a low view of the head. If you don't have an exalted view of Christ who is the head, then the body, well, you're not going to think much of it either. And this is what this is how we're going to hone in today and finish in Ephesians 4 is understanding that our covenant with one another is because we're in covenant with the head which makes us in covenant with the body. You cannot be in with the head and then out with the body. That makes no sense. All right. Now, one more thing I'm going to do and this is for you to be thinking about all week. And this is sort of a self-examination. Cuz I assume there's probably four types of people sitting here today, and I'm going to name all t- four types. And I, over the next four weeks, be honest about where you are, okay? And I'm thinking as I'm preaching through this these next four weeks, I'm thinking about these four types of people. Number one, members who are committed to living out our church covenant. So that's a two-parter. Member a formal member, and they're committed to living out our church covenant. So number one, they've publicly committed to this local body. By doing what? By vowing their commitment with one another through the church covenant. But perhaps more importantly, this first person, they understand that it's not the covenant that commits them to that, but it's the word of God. And they're in pursuit of covenant relationship with one another because they know that that's what the Bible has called them to do. That the purpose of membership is greater than themselves. Okay, That's the first type of person. The second type of person that might be hearing this is members who are not committed to living out the church covenant. So they've crossed the T's and dotted the I's and have publicly made this commitment to this local body through this covenant, but their actions say otherwise. They're not acting into what their covenant commitment says. They might be indifferent or even ignorant to what the covenant tells us that the Bible says is how we should exist among one another. And so there's a lack of covenant pursuit a lack of covenant commitment to one another. And the third is non-members. And this is a broader category who are unsure or unaware or just waiting for covenant commitment within this local body. Now, there could be many reasons why this might be you. And here's five, and we're not going to talk about them today. They're going to come across as we go throughout this month. Here are some reasons, some serious Real reasons why you might hesitate of being a formal covenant member of Ozarks Bible Church. Number one, you're unsure about the church for one reason or another. You might think, this guy, I'm not sure what he preaches. And so you're here to listen and wait and examine. Um, it could be other reasons. Uh, number two, you've had past issues with former churches. I get it. And so you're 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 watching, you're waiting, you're seeing. Um, number three, perhaps you don't think formal membership and church covenants are biblical. And we've, we've discussed that already. Number four, you have, and this, these last two, 
might sting, but they're just true. You have problems with authority. Number five, you just want to avoid the mess of relationships. Because um, people are difficult. We are. Now, don't say that next to your wife who you've covenanted with. I'm not talking about you. I'm saying don't say that out loud. We're not going to address these this week, but this is what I want you to do. And I want you to, if you're hesitant to make a commitment, whether whether you are an actual member or not, this is for everybody. I want you, whether you're a member or a regular attendee, to begin to be prayerfully honest and reflect within yourself. What is my hesitation to pursue what is outlined in this covenant? So even if you're a number one, a member who's in pursuit of it, there might be a part of it. You're like, I've not really committed to that part yet. So prayerfully and honestly be thinking about why you are where you are. Um, I think it would be a good thing to just remember or write down Psalm 139, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a pretty good verse for us to meditate on for the next four weeks as members or regular attenders. Um, Oh, I forgot the fourth. I didn't write it down, but whether you're a member or a regular attender, the fourth is an unbeliever. It doesn't matter what commitment you've made. But if you find yourself uncovered by the blood of Christ, if you find yourself not trusting in him for eternal life, if you find yourself not thinking that you need redemption from your sin, it doesn't matter if you memorize this and tell it to everybody. Paul says to the Corinthians, for whoever doesn't love Christ, he'd be damned. So no matter how much you think you love the people, but if you are not in Christ, it's vanity. It's all vanity. So as I told the the new members class, it's very evident in the scriptures that Jesus comes preaching that all people everywhere repent and believe the gospel. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, so I, this is going to be go, they're going, Ephesians four is going to go quick, I promise. Look at Ephesians four. There's two points that we're going to draw out, and it basically I'm just going to read from Ephesians with with little commentary. The two points that we're going to draw out for the sake of our first paragraph in our covenant. And from Ephesians 4 are this. And these two points make actually one major point. And the first is that God saves sinners...
to be members of the body of Christ. See, we usually get it backwards and we say, God save me so I don't go to hell. No, God saves you to be members of the body of Christ. Now, there are many other benefits and applications of salvation, but Ephesians is very is very clear that you've been saved to not just an individual salvation, but to be members of the body of Christ. Point two, so, so that... You and the body of Christ may grow together into Christ, the head, exalting him and making him known. So you see, salvation is bigger than we are. That's, that's a good summary. God saves sinners, number one, to be members of the body of Christ, the church. You've got to begin with understanding that salvation is bigger than your individual self. Look at Ephesians 1, but it, but it starts there, right? It cannot start there. Ephesians 1, 1 through 7 shows us that. But start at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. I'm sorry, I said there's going to be reading. That's basically all we're going to do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, as the, plur, the pluralness of these words are popping out, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his body, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace. Salvation to us individually comes to us through the blood of Christ. Salvation brings you from the outside in. Not into heaven, but into the body of Christ. Into the church. Into the family of God. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Look at this. Pay Pay very close attention to these two verses. Remember that you were at the, that time outside of Christ, right? Not saved, an unbeliever. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Person number four, that's you right now. Without God and no hope. Christian, this is what you once were. But now you've been brought in. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, who uh, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that well, you could say, well, you've been brought near to God. Yes, that's right. But you've been brought near to more than that. Not less than that, but more than that. Um. You've been given access. We talked about that in justification, right, last week. You've been given your, – your status has changed before God, but it's also changed before the, the church, before the kingdom, before the temple. Your salvation brought you to Christ, brought you to God, has justified you, but has made you a citizen of something that is bigger than you, and that is the household of God. Look at verses uh, 18 through 22 in chapter 2. Verse 18, chapter 2. For through him, Jesus, 
we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, if any of you are familiar with, Hebrew, with Ephesians 2, you understand that, that Paul is talking about this bringing in of the Gentiles and the Jews. But what is he bringing the Gentiles and the Jews to? Unity into the body of Christ, right? Unity. Uh, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure that you're now being made a part of, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, in your salvation, have become a brick in the masonry of the church of God. You are a part of the church of God, the temple of God, formed by the Spirit and the Word of God. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about being a part of this temple, this church, this body? Well, in the long term, we all know that that's where we're going to dwell with God forever. God will dwell in our midst. We will see him face to face. But in the short term... The reason you're brought into this body is bigger than yourself, and it's for a calling that you then share with the rest of the body. Look at Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord. So, I therefore, everything I just told you, keep in mind. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. So he's telling you how you ought to live your life. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There it is. We're brought together with a calling. Which brings us to point number two. Jesus, number one, Jesus saves sinners to be members of the body of Christ, the church. But he does that, point number two, so that we might fulfill our calling together, which is to grow together into Christ the head in order that Christ may be exalted and known. And you say, okay, how'd you get all that? Okay, Ephesians 4 says, okay, now that you know all this, go go accomplish your calling. Live worthy of it. So what is it? Well, I think he's already told us in two different ways in chapter 3. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 3. Paul is going to explain to you in chapter seven or verse 7 of chapter 3 and on why he does what he does. Why he is who he is, okay? Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am, very, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, so this grace to be a minister, a preacher, to preach to the Gentiles, by the way, that's you, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone that is... Uh, everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And here it is. What's, this, what's, the whole, what's the calling for us? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. God saved you, not just so you can avoid hell, 
but so that you can join the body in unity to declare Him. To make Him known. Hang there, let me read this. This just popped into my head. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's a group of people. A people for His own possession that you may proclaim not that you're going to heaven, but the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise be to God. Now, the other part of the calling, so making him known as the church, but uh, verse 20 and 21 gives us the second part of it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Here it is. To him be glory. Where? In the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our calling is to make God known and to exalt Him. You exalt Him, you make Him known. When you make Him known, you exalt Him. Not individually, but collectively. And you say, well, how? How do you know that? Well, look back at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 in the context of the calling. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 has said that we're going to do it together. But verse 2 says we're going to do it together because you know what you're going to need? You're going to need some patience. Why do you think you're going to need patience? Because you're going to be doing it together. Why do you think you need humility? Because you're going to be doing it together. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look what he says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Peace. Now let's connect that to the goal of covenant membership as we've already said. Glorify Christ, purify the church, and sanctify the saints. That's what we're called to do together as the body of Christ. Now, uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the rest of uh, this passage Verses 7 through 16. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see these three things. Christ being glorified, the church being purified, and the saints being sanctified, being made holy. See these things in the rest of Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, for the sake of our help for going through this, jump down to 11. Because verse 8 and 9 are helpful things, but they kind of break up what we're seeing. So verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gifts. Verse 11, Paul comes back around to his thought, and he says, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Can I just say, 
If the body is growing up into the head, do you know who is getting exalted? The head. Right? Not only that, but if they are growing up because of the head, guess who is getting exalted? The head. Let's just read it. Verse 14. Here's the purity of the church. So that they may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, the body of Christ, the church, Ozark's Bible Church, are to grow up in every way into the head, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part or member is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God saves sinners to be members of the body of Christ, the church, so that they may grow together into Christ the head in order that Christ may be exalted and known. And when that happens, Christ is glorified, the church is purified, and you, the saints, are sanctified. That's the point of our covenant, because that's the point of the scriptures. That's what we've been called to. And our church covenant is just a shortened summary form of saying, I vow to this. As I've been looking through Ephesians, and in the context of this church covenant, I could probably proof text every sentence in this church covenant with a verse out of Ephesians four, or Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. I could basically, for those who wanted to covenant membership to the Ozarks Bible Church, I could read Ephesians 4 and say, do you agree? And you could say, I do. And that would be the same as, as agreeing to this church covenant. Go and look at it. Compare the two. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and first half of 4 is basically the first paragraph. Chapter or Paragraph 2, 3, and 4 is basically the end of chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. They just overlay each other. Go home and read it. Pray about it. Um, and if you'll notice in the first paragraph, there's basically... One division. And that one division says, I'm in Christ, and so I'm committed to the local body of Christ. That's basically paragraph one. I belong to Christ, so now I joyfully commit myself to his body. That's it. That's paragraph one in a nutshell. So two final statements. Um, Some of you can't not agree to this because you cannot claim the first two sentences or three sentences in this covenant. And this is the the group four. You cannot truthfully say, having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and upon the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you cannot say to anyone that you've been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Now, you've heard me talk about him week by week, and you've heard me say the gloriousness of the gospel. But you, person number four, you've not put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the the, the trueness of chapter 2, verse uh, 12, should haunt you for those who find themselves with no faith in Christ, that you have no hope 
and are without God in this world. And if you are without God in this world, you, Lord, have mercy on you. However, if you flee to Christ this morning, if you lay yourself bare before him and cry out to him as the tax collector did, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The blood of Christ will wash you white as snow. Your debt that you owe God, that you can never repay, will be wiped clean because it had been nailed to the cross of Christ. You will be justified before God. And what does that bring? Pardon of all sin. Given righteousness of Christ in our account. And you would be accepted as righteous before God's sight. And from that moment of trusting in Christ of giving yourself to him, nothing can separate you from the head, the Lord Jesus and his love. And you will be brought into his body for his glory and for your good and the good of those with you. If you turn to Christ today, you will be saved, justified, and made a member of his body. And then you profess that faith in public baptism, acknowledging to the body of Christ that you have been dead to sin, and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now for the members, I want to conclude by looking back at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. And this is it. This is for you saints of God. This is for the church of God. There is one... Now when I say that, let me, let me make my, uh, something very clear. You might not be a member of this church right now. I am not saying that you are not a saint of God, that you are not of the universal church in Christ. And so this is for all who are in Christ. Verse 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I want to say this. The heavenly unity and oneness is a reality that we share with every Christian across this world and every Christian that has ever lived and every Christian that will ever live. This is the truth that we have in the universal body of Christ. But oh, how sweet is it that next Sunday or tonight you can come and experience this oneness with the people you sit next to. Your expression of your unity to the body of Christ is your commitment to this body or wherever the Lord leads you. It is with those that you covenant with and say, I am with you. I will strive to do as these verses outline in all humility and gentleness with patience. And guess what? I'm coming knowing that you're going to have to be patient with me. You know, Spurgeon said, everybody's looking for the perfect church. Well, he also said, if you find it, don't join it because you'll ruin it. 
the reality is, is there's no perfect church. We're all messy people. That's why we're here, right? All humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because the head has made you and I a part of his body. We, though many members, are one body. Let's pray. Father, be glorified in all that we have heard and said and read today. Bring the humility, gentleness, and patience and love that we need to find the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. May Christ be exalted at Ozarks Bible Church. Might the church be purified and might we all the saints be sanctified and be be made more like our Lord Jesus. To him we give all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.